Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. I don't like to usually acknowledge gaps in our podcasting schedule, but I think this is a pretty long one. We left off at the end of the last session, and uh, we've talked a few times since, but we haven't recorded any episodes. Yeah, you came over and saw my dogs. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, yeah. we hung out at your house, and I also, I uh, my flight got, I flew all the way back to Juneau, and then they've turned us around, and then sent me back to Anchorage with, like, no overnight stuff, and then I ended up crashing at your place that one time, that was really good. Yeah, although when you called me at like 9.30 or something, when you were like, still, are you still up? I was like, oh no, he probably wants to talk about something. I don't know if I'm going to answer this. <laughs> I'm glad you answered the phone. I would have been stuck somewhere else. But yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been a while, so maybe we should just start with some sort of like, where are they now updates. I, I don't know if this is the kind of thing where like new listeners should jump on as a new session is beginning, so maybe we should back up even further and just sort of mention like, Hey, this is a, um, this is kind of a hobby podcast that we do about politics and, and people and Alaska. And Matt is a journalist and I am a, uh, I don't know, activist, I guess. Um, and, uh, and we're interested in the way things get done in Alaska. And, and I think ultimately we're both interested in kind of like better policymaking through observation and participation and um and grumpy newsletters and grumpy newsletters <laughs> you you've become more of a curmudgeon in the last uh few years it's really it's it's been you're really like you're growing into it quite well Very. i'm glad i'm glad yeah <laughs> i think it's i think it's it's like the natural progression for an alaska journalist so um i guess yeah so my year's been interesting right like uh so i started this year you know this year was the year where the midnight sun finally kind of ended um i'm now working with the alaska current and kind of recently sort of stepped up my efforts there um so i'm more close to like a full-time reporter for them which has actually been like really this like really welcome change i've been working alone really since like 2017 um you know, going, going without an editor, which, you know, there've been some ups and downs with that. Um, and, but, you know, the biggest thing I think that, you know, I really have always liked this podcast for is that it's really an opportunity to like recreate some of those like meandering newsroom conversations I'd have where you kind of bounce ideas off and you kind of come out of it being like, okay, now I know what I, I want to write about or what's important about this issue. And so um, now I'm working with Elastic Current, um, a couple people there, and it's like, kind of feels like a, a real newsroom again and been covering the city government yeah maybe you could tell me a little more about about the current it's not a uh, I, I read it occasionally but not very much it feels like it's more anchorage centric it's newer i haven't really like baked it into my reading routine yet yeah i mean i think it's it's that's what it is it's sort of new we, we're really still trying to figure out exactly you know what it is and what it wants to be I think that kind of loose idea is that, you know, we're supposed to be kind of more of like an alt-weekly sort of news thing that is, you know, Anchorage-focused, but has some, you know, state elements to it. So we work with the 907 Initiative. We've got a couple people on, um, and uh, yeah, it's been good. So is this like straight journalism, or is it a little bit like activist journalism? You know, I think there's elements of it. You know, you look at my newsletter, right, and it's sort of been a little bit of both i think uh and i think this is kind of the same way where you know i think the idea is that you know i can exercise 
my judgment and uh you know as i've been doing with the midnight sun for several years now yeah but it's is i mean so this is no but we're not like part of the campaign efforts or anything like that i mean that's what it is an interesting sort of setup right because you're not like the the blue must read alaska i mean i hope not okay (laughs) but i think that like you know it is sort of interesting setup right where we you know, 907 initiative is, you know, runs ads that are against the mayor. Right. right. And so it's interesting to be involved in that. Um, you know, I can say that we haven't had any uh, directed coverage from them. But, you know, I would say that the, you know, the kind of writing I've done over the last several years sort of fits in, I think, with some of their mission. Right. I think they, right. you know, they want, you know, ostensibly want a you know good, well-functioning government uh that's you know responsive and responsible to the people so you know i i kind of support that mission if i'm being honest and yeah um but yeah it's, it, it is interesting i think it's one of the sort of weird worlds of journalism now yeah well i mean that's fascinating and that's something that we've talked about a lot is just sort of the evolving changing shape of journalism in in alaska and and across the nation but it's you know, now you see a lot more nonprofit journalism. We've got the state newsroom uh, in Alaska. Um, Kitcheman and Brooks and that gang are all doing that proce- process. You know, we're still dependent on a lot of radio stations to deliver news. Um, I'm watching in Juneau, the, the Empire has kind of gone through, it's constantly going through, you know, f- cycles of famine and, and rebirth. And, you know, it's just kind of teetering on the edge of existence. And, uh, you know the ADN. We've seen we've seen it come in and out of bankruptcy and kind of be reborn again. And it it feels like it's it's got some some legs under it finally. It's been uh, it's been a lot of change over the last you know decade or so, and in Alaska's news landscape and news and media landscape. And we've seen a lot of good reporters go and and uh, and we've seen some new ones emerge that are that are kind of holding mm-hmm. things together, but doing it in a way that you know 10, 15 years ago it would have been four or five people doing the work that one person is doing now. And so it never feels like there's quite enough eyes on anything. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, my my take with the the wide landscape of Alaska media is that everything you know has some kind of asterisk next to it that you kind of need to, you know, I think understanding what the outlet is, who's funding it is an important part of understanding that kind of coverage. And I think that it doesn't necessarily um, negate the coverage, even on the right, right? Like there are these conservative groups, you know, Mustard Alaska, we talked about them a lot. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest that sometimes it's actually like legit, re- real reporting on there. And I think that, you know, you keep in mind where it's coming from, but I think there are certainly times when that um, reporting comes out where you go, wish I got that story first, you know? There's been times when, and, and not to sing the praises of Mustard, Alaska, but there, <laughs> there have is, been times. not exactly where I thought this is going to be going. <laughs> there have been times when I've found a story there that has not been covered by any other news outlet. And it's like, for me, it's such a dubious news source that, like, I have to go around and, like, ask people, like, did this happen? Is this a real thing? But th- they find things and scoop things up that are coming out of these conservative echo chambers or circles that, you know, no, no one else is hearing. It feels like if you're trying to understand the whole landscape. I mean, honestly, I think the, there's also the Alaska Watchman. It's another conservative one. Yeah. Um, and that one's a really interesting it's one. It's got a lot of Matt Sue stuff in it. You also, It's a really good insight into conserva- the conservative mindset, I think, too, well, almost more so than must read. And very religious, too. 
yeah. It's like has it has the uh, the kind of the the conservative factions in Alaska have a real strong religious underpinning, but the the Watchmen just wears it on their sleeve and mm-hmm. leans into it really heavily, like too kind of a disturbingly extreme. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's good to know, right? Yeah. I think that's like, you know, I'd rather have it out in the open for us all to read than it being you know, sequestered into Telegram channels and yeah. all that sort of stuff. So yeah, and I kind of wonder, you know, like does do they do the people that write that stuff do they read the ADN with the same skeptical eye or you know I mean <laughs> it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting landscape of news in Alaska right now some of the editorial walls have come down some of the accountability some of the rules some of the ethics some of the background in journalism school isn't there you know and so it's <laughs> so you just get a lot of different perspectives and it's kind of whoever's doing the work Mm-hmm. That, that produces it right so if you sit down and produce an article every day you're a pretty loud voice in alaska which can be scary <laughs> yeah i mean i think like personally it's just been like this interesting you know this year has been for me a lot of change just sort of figuring out how to you know manage all these different things to get more into the city coverage to sort of balance all this sort of stuff um it's been good. I mean, I think honestly, like personally speaking, I, I feel more grounded and sort of directed than I have in a long time. I know yeah. we've sort of had, you know, heart to hearts about it, but you know, I think that like just working alone for a long time really, I think wore on me. And, uh, and so I think I'm feeling pretty good right now. What are some of the things you've written about this year that you're, you feel like were particularly meaningful or that you did a good job on or that you're really proud of? Um, you know, since, since we last recorded in in um, in the spring, uh, there's been a lot that has happened, and I'm just kind of wondering, like, what stands out for you as as pieces you're proud of? You're putting me on the spot here, kind of like you know the undercurrent of sort of extremist forces in Alaska has been really interesting. I think that um, you know I wrote a piece uh, in November for my newsletter that was sort of talking about. Um, you know, Treg Taylor, Attorney General Treg Taylor, and a lot of his, um, you know, kind of contextualizing all these different sort of disparate pieces where he's, uh, you know, going after librarians and school districts and, and, and uh, you know, how this is sort of a part, large, part of a larger effort uh, to really, for, by the Dunleavy administration and others, to really force their agenda past the legislative process and into, um, and into reality, really, right? Yeah. Through executive order, through legal decisions, reinterpretations, that sort of stuff. Yeah, so that's thought... been interesting to track. I think it's one of those things where it's like there's all these little threads and then being able to pull them all together and contextualize them has been really um, been really happy about that, yeah. I thought you did a really good job of that as well, actually. Um, the That spilled out of the last legislative session. We saw meetings that were packed, you know, dealing with, like, um, trans youth and sports and uh, education and and people were exhausted because they were coming to all these meetings and they're, you know, packing up the meeting rooms and opposing these things. It was really tough for the legislature because they were met with opposition and they couldn't just, you know, sling things through. And then, um, and then the session ended and it, it's, it has been really interesting to see all these little efforts that are kind of post policy efforts. You know, it's not, it's not a deliberative process so much as it is, 
um, the attorney general sending out a skewed opinion about something or trying to scare people into doing something with legal threats. Um, and so it seems like a lot of activism coming out of the attorney general's office right now. And, and I think you did a really good job of tying that to sort of this national wedge issue that's been, you're seeing it kind of all over the place in, in advance of the presidential election that's coming up. And, you know, it one, it's something for me where I wonder like how much this is actually an issue they care about and how much of it's like a political strategy and how much of it is, you know, and, and the sort of cynical side thinks that they're just doing this to create a landscape where they're going to get a few extra votes. And, um, and it's really terrible because they're actual human beings that are being impacted by these policies. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It just feels like a, a, a weird time for librarians and a weird time for trans kids. And, um, and I, and I think you did a good job of tying all the things together and, and kind of pulling all the pieces. Yeah, and I think an, an, an interesting sort of next part of that story, too, is when you look at the Matsu Borough School District, where, like, things have, like, really kind of gotten nasty between the students and the school board. Yeah. Um, so the school board, you know, I think they were the first um, school board to, or the really the first area, maybe only area independent of the state action, but that banned um, trans girls from playing in girls sports. They did it last year. Um, and then they've also sort of led the way on book bannings on other few other things. And then when the students started to speak out against it, they, they responded by, um, you know, limiting the scope of how the student representative can participate in those meetings. They investigated the students when they, they uh, d protested that um, you know, when they had walkouts, the school officials were meeting with them, telling them that they weren't allowed to talk about the school board races, that they weren't allowed to advocate any sort of specific way. So we got these like stories, you know, that con contemporary stories that were saying, um, oh, we're, we're trying to raise awareness about the school board races when they were protesting the school board, you know, and, and, but because the, uh, the way that the, the school board and the school administrators leaned on them it changed their message really. And so it's, so there's some really, I think, you know, we're seeing, I think a preview of, of kind of what is sort of behind a lot of this, which is, I think there's like a really kind of threatening level, like authoritarianism <laughs> contained in this stuff. And, and sort of a, uh, you know, rejection to accept the fact that, like, you know, that their narrative, that they are defending the sanctity of kids and girls sports is, like, not actually true, right? Like, if the kids are, you know, they're doing all these things under the guise of protecting the kids. when But when the kids are saying that we don't want this, then it, you know, messes it up. But the fact that they are turning and and really attacking the children and, and their, their constitutional right to free speech... Uh, I think it's like this really alarming sort of next step in it all. And so I think these are like, those are some of the huge issues that I'm, I'm really just really interested in and seeing how they play out. Um, what was interesting about that though, is that, you know, they were holding these protests up into the, their municipal election in the fall and several conservative board members were up for election, or at least one key one was is Dunleavy, um, endorsed guy and they won, they all won by pretty handy margins. So, uh, so maybe the kids are out of line with the voters. Yeah, but that's also encouraging, I don't know, to me, I think, is to see, um, you know, th they're teaching these kids to become activists through 
by trying to stifle their views. And I think that that's meaningful in a generational way. You know, I think mm-hmm. that, that it'll be interesting to see what those kids do with, with, with this and where they take it and what they learn from it. And yeah. um, I'm, I'm always happy to see young folks speaking their mind and being part of the conversation. It's, it's just nice to see that. I mean, the kids are way more compassionate than any of these adults are. I think that's yeah. like compassionate, empathetic. I think they like, you know, every single time one of these young people uh, testifies about any of these issues, I think they show much more nuance and understanding and like tolerance and forgiveness to their fellow human beings than any of these adults have ever shown the capability for. I think that's, you know, if there's any sort of silver lining in all this is that it looks like these kids, the the hate isn't really rubbing off on these kids all that. Well, maybe it'll change when they have to start paying taxes. We'll find yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, economic anxieties will set in. Yeah. The yeah, it's it's wild though to see, like some of the heartfelt testimony and just some of the investment and, um, and it, and it's and it's great. Like it it points towards a, a brighter future for me, and it gives me a lot of hope to when young folks engage in the process and the policies and understand what they're saying and. And it also makes it really hard to say we're doing this for the kids when the kids are so eloquently stating that this is <laughs> that is bullshit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyways, um, so any other uh, life updates on your uh, end? What's uh? uh no, I, I traveled a bunch this summer. I was like gone like about a week every month for like several months straight, mm-hmm. uh, which was great. I saw a lot of, you know, friends and family and, and went to several weddings and got to a lot of theme parks and rode a lot of roller coasters this year. Uh, but it was like it it really threw me off like all summer. Just I you know felt like I didn't really ever get into like much of a routine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, being back this fall has felt really good. Just, just getting settled and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. And Finally, what... the, the ice here, the the all the outdoor rinks are finally ready to skate so i'm really excited about that i'm gonna go do that hopefully this afternoon the thing that i keep reading about anchorage is just everyone's trying to make snow plowing a huge uh issue in advance of the mayoral election i mean it was really bad i would say but i mean like to the credit i guess to in the defense of the 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 poor you know what i think everyone was sort of say is a poor response is that it really was like this deep heavy snow that they got like it was something like two to three feet of pretty heavy snow um there's a lot of i think there's some actually really interesting questions about you know how does climate change sort of fit into this is this sort of you know this is our second really heavy year of sort of heavy heavier than expected snowfall that has really sort of snarled the city i think they you know they canceled nearly a week of school here yeah and um so there's a lot of questions about you know Really, I guess there's really a lot of pushback from the Dunleavy and Bronson administrations to like beef up snow plowing. The, the argument essentially is that we don't, you shouldn't plan for, uh, you know, the rare event. You should plan for the normal thing, and then we'll just use private contractors for when it gets really bad. Yeah. Um, I think the question is, you know, in the in the context of it, is like how what are we going to expect moving forward? And also, like in the grand context, which is I think is sort of the interesting thing, which is these are understaffed and underfunded services that ex, you know that the problems at them extend well beyond 
the kind of current political fights, right? These right. are problems that we are are decades in the making, right? And so, uh, like, that's the thing, you know, like, they have, like, fewer flower drivers than they did 10 years ago kind of thing. Yeah, yeah you could kind of look at any part of state government and see uh, the same sort of threadbare uh, service. Yep. You know, the, the one person that's doing the job of five or the uh, piece of equipment that hasn't been upgraded in, in uh, tw- twice its lifespan or you know, that kind of yeah. thing. There's just a lot of there's – there's a lot of – aging in our system uh, both you know in terms of equipment and in terms of people we've got people that are aging out and retiring and not being replaced and we're losing a lot of institutional knowledge and we're not able to hire people because we don't have an, an attractive pay scale yeah or benefits but you know like we're gonna efficient our efficiency our way to a balanced budget it, it's kind of one of those like i told you so moments that you don't want to have where I, I can think about some of the conversations we were having, you know, five, seven years ago, and the the conversations were about how we were going to right-size the budget and how we were going to do more with less and how we were going to, uh, you know, the, the, the more with less uh, mantra really sort of proved out to be a failure. Um, the idea that we were going to Cut funding, cut funding across the board and get a, a better level of service was was a, a somehow I don't know why it was an illusion. Um, I'm not sure why it didn't work to pay less money and get better services. But it, <laughs> but it seemed like a good idea at the time. And we really embraced it and our politicians embraced it. And and here we are now um, having done not more with less. Yeah, I think it's why like taking solace in in some of the the brighter spots of our political world right now, or just our, our regular world, is like so important. Because I think like part of it is that you know I, I think I felt a little bit this year is that like it's hard to there's a reason why I think people don't try to spend every single waking minute following the news because it. You know, if you, I think you get when you get really like in depth with it, it gets really depressing, right? It gets really dire. I think you look at yeah. a lot of the national news and a lot of the, um, you know, kind of just like fundamental attacks on democracy and the order that we live in. It's like a, it's it's been really tough. I think it's been a, kind of a bleak year in a lot of ways. Um, Did you ever see the Green Mile? Yeah, I feel like you're that guy. Like you like Hoover up all the bad <laughs> stuff in the world, and you have to like expel it or else it turns into like a black sludge in your heart yeah and and i don't you know i've seen you over the years try and deal with that of like observing all these meetings and you know following you know frankly people that are that are doing things for personal gain or that are terrible or watching corrupt systems or um you know like absorbing that on the policy and there's a few bright spots that kind of keep you going but you sort of as a journalist hoover up all of that dark matter and then have to figure out a way to expel it from your body as as ash in the wind right (laughs) yeah i mean i think that like that's why i like being where i'm at right where i'm i can be i can say i'm you know work for a progressive outlet i'm you know progressive leading reporter right because like i think it was really tough for me um before because you know i think like it's impossible not to get invested in some of these issues right i think as much as we all like to act like we are these like dead-eyed uh journalistic observers like it's hard to look at this stuff especially when you're like a member of the community who like 
wants is invested in Alaska being a good place. And yeah. So you're not a yeah. robot. You're a human being, and you live here, and you care about this place. And it's hard not to. It's hard to be impartial when you're when something feels terrible. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting. And I think it's frustrating too when, um, you know, you look at these fights. You look at, you know, the the elements of them, and and it seems to be pretty apparent that like things are going wrong or are, are not working right yeah and then for the like systems of power just to kind of like shrug and move on i think so we uh the reason we were really talking you know this got onto this specific sort of like thread i think is that we were talking about this recent apoc hearing so these are the you know camp alaska camp alaska public offices commission they just had a hearing um about the latest complaint against the anti-rcv anti-rank choice voting group Alaskans for Honest Elections. Uh, basically, they, you know, the Alaskans for Better Elections laid out this sort of pretty compelling case about like a shadow campaign and shadow fundraising and unreported activities. And then there just kind of was like enough sort of like subterfuge and confusion sort of thrown out where the commissioners were like, ah, we'll just take it up later. And, yeah. and it, I think it just is, is I can't say, I can't necessarily, you know, I looked at that case too and was also like, maybe, I think maybe they're right, like that maybe you should just punt it. But to see that, like, you know, they're going to, so basically it clears the way for this anti RCV group to get to the ballot signature turn in process really without ever actually having to face any sort of like major uh, vi- you know, penalty accountability yeah. for like basically violating every single, uh, campaign you know finance disclosure law in yeah. the book, so. and oh by the way they might just close up shop and cease to exist before any penalties or well they promise they won't way. no they didn't really <laughs> promise they won't they promise that they don't intend to and i think there's a lot oh, of, right a lot of strength in the word intend you know like I, yeah. I i intend to do an awful lot like when i get up in the morning and we we intend to record this podcast yeah. more regularly yeah yeah totally and so i think there's you know, there's a lot of good intentions out there, and then sometimes there's some intentions that are a little wishful. And I, I really wouldn't be surprised if they, um, you know, if they close up shop and they're like, "Oh, sorry, I guess we don't have any money to pay you because we don't exist yeah. anymore." Um, you know, the although one person did point out to me is that an interesting wrinkle in that is that some of the complaints are targeted at the individual. Yes. So there is, you know, if even if they get out of there individually, they could still potentially. But this Maybe. goes back to like the Bronson administration running their race, and we've we've developed it's just a, the cost of doing business. You yeah. just yeah, it's it's the cost of doing business, but also it's a cost that comes after the election is decided, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, oftentimes these punishments from the Public Offices Commission don't land in a with meaningful haste, and so the the impact isn't you just do whatever you need to do to get elected or to get your issue on the ballot or to you know X Y Z name your thing. Um, and then deal with the consequences later once you've won. And, and yeah. I feel like that's something we're seeing more of is that people just barrel through the, the, um, barrel through the process and then maybe get one bad news cycle later on when they have to pay some fines. And yeah. sometimes it bites you in the ass. Sometimes you're um, Lance Pruitt and now you're not elected and you also owe a <laughs> bunch of money. Um, but a lot of times you're Mayor Bronson and you've, skirted the rules and end up in the end up in the seat of power and it's really easy to take care of those fines because people want favors yeah and you know and i think well like 
a big one of the, the biggest com- complaint from the 2022 elections uh, that was around the Republican Governors Association and. Um, oh, and, yeah, the RGA this, one. Uh, right. And this pack uh, pro Dunleavy pack and still in court, like they're still fighting over whether the APOC can subpoena them. Right. Um, and and if, if this goes ongoing. if this goes badly, this large national Republican Governors Association may be required to reveal a list of their donors and mm-hmm. and it be. seems on the face of it like looking at it it seems like that is a logical outcome but it's also not heartening when you kind of look at how apoc deals with things there's a lot of times they're you know here's your 90 percent discount and a slap on the wrist um they're really they really do roll over for a lot of people and um it in in some ways it makes sense they're the the laws are complex and difficult to follow and they don't have enough staff to really like help people along in the process or to monitor the process but on the other Mm -hmm. hand like if there's no consequences people just kind of do whatever they want to do i've been involved in various campaign efforts and it's it's a lot of work to try and track all the little wiggly details but i also understand why it's important the thing that emerged from this recent case that you're talking about just the other day, um, oh, and I should disclose, I'm I'm part of the um, Alaska for Better Elections board, right? So I'm, you know, invested in this and theoretically invested <laughs> in this in a, in, a, in a much deeper way, right? Yeah. But the uh, the thing that I that I saw was that you can create a business that, like, if you Matt Buxton are going to manage m- my campaign to. I don't know. We're going to overturn all that is good and replace it with evil. And I would like to hire you to do the campaign work. So I can, so we raise some money and I just write you one big check for a hundred thousand dollars or whatever. And then whatever you spend that on, you don't need to disclose. And so it's kind of Mm -hmm. a loophole in how campaign finance works is that hiring a contractor, uh, none of the subs get reported. And so you can spend that money on, buying signature gatherers, renting office space, it really becomes invisible to to the citizens of Alaska what the actual campaign expenses are. And so well, that that seemed to be something that I, I didn't hear any pushback on that from APOC mm-hmm. or anyone. It seemed like they're okay with that. And and that seems like a pretty dangerous loophole and maybe something the legislature should address. I'm not I'm not exactly sure. But Yeah. It, well and what's interesting about it too is specifically in there is that this company that's it was running allegedly running this alleged shadow campaign was getting, you know, discounted what is this effectively discounted rent from the church Wells Wellspring Church. And so um, you know, there's this interesting sort of kind of catch 22 with it where, you know, churches aren't allowed to make profit on it, but at the same time, they're not really allowed to offer stuff at like a, a less than market rate to a campaign. It becomes an in-kind contribution. I mean, but that's, because that's, it was being I, offered I, I have to this issues company, with that, Matt. like the nonprofits <laughs> don't, aren't required to not make a profit. They're required to, you know, I mean, they're. That, that's not exactly how it works. Like you can, a nonprofit can have a bake sale. Are you saying and, Kevin Clarkson wasn't wasn't being entirely accurate about it? Well, a nonprofit organization can have a bake sale and they can sell brownies for whatever they want. They can sell them for twice as much. If it's a fundraiser for the organization, mm-hmm. it's really about how the organization expends their money. It's not so much about how, you know, like how much they charge for rent or how much they charge for a brownie. It's, you know, like mm-hmm. that's, 
nonprofit doesn't mean you can't profit off of something. It just has to do, right. do with how, so, how much yeah. is reported and expended. And it what it means is you don't have shareholders and they're not making a profit. You know, no individual is profiting. The board isn't profiting. Mm-hmm. Well, so the argument then, I guess so, is either way is that, you know, offering typically. So if, if the campaign had gotten this $300 a month rent for this room from the, the church, it might have counted as an in-kind contribution, essentially yeah. giving, you know, a discounted versus, you know, having to go to buy regular or rent regular office yeah, space from a regular prices. place at market prices. Yeah. And so, but because it is the company that is getting that benefit, it, it doesn't count is, is what, at least what the argument is, is here is that it's not an in-kind contribution because the company got it, even though the, the church that was offering it at a below market rate is the same guy as the campaign itself. Well, that's an interesting wrinkle. So, yeah. so if so, back to my scenario, I've hired you to do this work so that we can in, instill our um, evil agenda. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is that if someone gives you free stuff, I don't have to report that as a campaign contribution. So, uh, yeah, apparently, and even if you you are giving me free stuff, so I can run my campaign for you, then me, that's okay. Me, the individual, not yeah, me, the you, campaign organization. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. if I give you a bunch of free things, I don't have to disclose it on the campaign disclosure as an in-kind. Apparently, company. yeah. Well, I mean, maybe. we ha- This all hasn't been ruled on yet. So we- and we'll find out in December or in February uh, of next year, which will be about a month and a half after they put in their signatures. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not confident they have the signatures. I've heard – listening to that, they, they said that they have all the signatures now. They've got 30 – somewhat thousand signatures but they've also said that they, they need 26 that, that yeah. they yeah well they've said they have more than that but they also mm-hmm. have said that they're still trying to collect signatures and they also seem mm-hmm. pretty hung up on like let's get our signature books back we need those and it, i don't think that they it, their story doesn't seem consistent throughout this case that they have all the signatures i think that they i think that they're having trouble collecting the the number of signatures that they need um and from all the yeah. districts and i think that there's I'd put it at like 50-50 that they're actually going to show up with the signatures by January 15th. And I think that if they do show up, if they don't show up with the signatures, they're going to just blame it on, you know, like, oh, it's these it's this mm-hmm. liberal lawfare that's trying to, <laughs> you know, we really tried our best and really, and, and these the guys. The liberal, the lawfare thing. I hadn't <laughs> heard that until this, oh, until seeing some of the responses around this. No, that, that's it, that's funny. That, that's yeah, a Trump yeah. thing. That's like that's yeah. like national news. Like the, it's a it's a word that will be in our lexicon this year. Is the liberal lawfare is is the yeah. new, is the new thing. Anytime you try to hold someone accountable, it's liberal lawfare, and yeah, it's not. It's 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 no longer. It's it, it, I think it's a response to the idea of rule of law, which is something that the the Republicans hammered on for for years and years, and then all of a sudden. Like there are legal consequences and these laws are stacking up against them. And like, you know, Donald Trump did a bunch of terrible illegal shit. And so now the now the rule of law is working against them. Um, So they have to come up with a way to like disassemble that. And so this liberal lawfare is a way to get around their Uh. love of the law. And so, you know, like what happened is is I, I see progressives like turn that against them. And they're like, sorry, man, rule of law. Like we got to follow the laws. You're in trouble because you broke the law, right? Like that, that mm. makes sense. And so all of a sudden the, the, the language that they used has been turned against them, this rule of law, this idea that the law is something that you must follow. 
And it's like, hey, you guys didn't follow the law, though, so you don't actually believe in the rule of law. And then they have to invent this new term called liberal lawfare, which is like um, when you okay. when the progressives are actually using the law to hold Republicans to account. So, okay. <laughs> anyways, yeah. that's, it's a, that, that's what I see. Another thing keep up in the middle of the night, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting to watch little conversations boil and bubble and churn over a few years. And, yeah, that's, that, that's <laughs> how I think that one went down. It's also interesting to see, like, um, for lack of a better term, like a, this like total freak out by some of the mem- from some of the campaign members against Scott Kendall, where uh, Philip Izon basically started screaming at him during the hearing. Multiple times. Uh, the law, the the sort of the the, off, the administrative officer who's overseeing the hearings, like, calm your client down. Yeah. Philip Izon is like God's gift to ranked choice voting. He, like, I know. Yeah. To have him opposing ranked choice voting is probably the best thing going for it. Well, and wasn't he the one that was like celebrate? He was talking about how like Mary Peltola's husband dying, yeah. like he didn't give a shit about it and fuck her basically. Yeah, he seems like he's very volatile. Um, but I don't, yeah. I don't know the guy. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know if you like him, run but, and, yeah. but I've just seen him in, in, in give presentations to the legislature and be very like flustered and unprepared and angry. And then I've seen him do these cases where he's kind of like yelling from the back of the room and. And he, he doesn't seem to have a good control over his emotions. And yeah. um, and I think that makes it tough for, you know, like a lot of times, like he's just very explosive. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways. Tried to uh, walk out during the hearing, you know, like he was, he was refusing to answer questions. And he only sat down when he was reminded that yeah. refusing to answer questions is not. Uh, a good strategy in a in a you know legal hearing like that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what he's going through, but it feels like there's a lot more, uh, a lot more under the surface there than perhaps mm-hmm. this one issue. Um, anyways, uh, getting back to the where are they now question. <laughs> yeah, I, where are you now? Here I am. <laughs> uh, where 40, am I now? Forty yeah. minutes later. Yeah. So uh, every year at the end of session, um, we, I, I feel like we do we have done for the past several years, we've done a pretty good job of kind of keeping up during session. And then at the end of session, everything falls apart, both because the session is moving too quickly to really keep up with in, in this form. Um, but also because I get busy doing like uh, comic convention stuff and tourism stuff and the shop is open and our hours are extending and things like that. And so usually around like April things, I, I kind of just vanish. And mm-hmm. um, what happened this year is we re- rekindled our comic convention here in Juneau. It was the first time we'd done it in, you know, the, what is it, was the three or four years since the pandemic. We had to cancel in 2020. Um, and so our 2023 convention was the f- first one we'd done in, in quite a while. And so it was, you know, hosting all these artists from out of town and taking them around all the schools and renting the campground and doing all that. So that was a really uh, big, busy, fun thing. And then um, we signed a lease on a new space. And so our store has moved off of Front Street and we moved up next to the Amalga Distillery there uh, into what was the old Foggy Mountain Shop. And it's this great, big, just beautiful space. It's this old like Art Deco building that was in the 40s was the AELNP, the Alaska Electric Light and Power Building. And where we are now was like a showroom floor where they sold appliances. It was like they sold vacuum mm-hmm. cleaners and blenders and 
and you know electric toasters as kind of an upsell so that you'd start paying more on your monthly electric charge right and it was I, I love this like notion that there was a time when electric companies had to sell appliances to get people to use electricity <laughs> it, it just was kind of a neat thing and there's some good uh, archival photos I need to dig out of Vilda of, of that old what that old building used to look like anyways we moved in there the landlord is the distillery and Brandon's been incredible to work with uh, he tore out the drop ceiling and tore up the old carpet and so the space looks a lot different than it used to um, and we kind of opened up the windows and um, just did a ton of work on the space. So I've been doing a lot of like amateur carpentry and um, getting cool. better getting better at it. I built a bunch of cabinets and stuff. And we had a lot of help from people that, were, you know, really taught me a lot of things in the process. Um, uh, Brent Curry, Lydia Krause. Um, there's just like a ton of people to thank. Christine Carpenter, Aaron. Uh, Aaron is my business partner and his wife helped us with the design and layout. and. Fan- corralled uh, our fantasy football nemesis yeah your your fantasy football <laughs> nemesis aaron yeah. <laughs> yeah so um he yeah and so aaron and i were super busy uh over the summer and the fall working on that and we ended up moving out of the old gallery on halloween so we're like carrying boxes up the street and people are like what are, what are you i'm like i'm moving like, I don't get it. <laughs> it was really, really a fun, uh, it was a fun moving process and, um, and just getting out of that space felt so good. You know, you, we'd, we'd been in there for 11 years and so you accumulate a lot of junk and, you know, just debris and dust and extra stuff. And really to think out how we want our space to function was a, a good exercise and it feels really good to be in there. I still have a ton of work. I mean, you know, checklist a mile long of things I need to do, but we're open and, uh, it, it's been great. Cool. Uh, yeah. I can't it, wait to go see it. I think I'll be, uh, in Juneau sometime in January. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that really, like, I, I think that just took a lot of time. I think that's kind of where I've been is, is working on that project. And, um, doing a lot of the normal stuff that I do, like um, on the other side of the business, I'm still doing a lot of website design, video production. I did an animated piece um, that was sort of a fun activist piece to, um, around the Juno City Hall. They mm-hmm. hired me to do essentially like an animated op-ed. And the issue failed, but I like to think that it failed by less than it would have if I hadn't been involved. And I think that might go to just bigger things i think that like when you look at a new city hall it it might feel frivolous when you're thinking about things like food security or you know climate change and landslides in southeast or seeing all the articles about education and and school funding and knowing that our schools aren't being funded as well as they should be i think for a lot of voters it's hard to connect those issues and realize that like funding for a new city hall isn't actually really related to things like uh, school funding, which is kind of a state level issue. And, but yeah, anyways, I'm, I guess I'm digressing, but it's a, it's a, we have an interest in, we have a, we have a good little community here and I'm excited to be involved in kind of in more conversations about mm-hmm. how we kind of move forward. And I think that Juno feels like a real bright spot for me. Uh, when I look at state politics, it's just real frustrating to, to see, uh, you know, we reelected Dunleavy and the only good thing about that is that he gets to suffer the consequences of his previous term instead of someone else coming in and having to fix mm-hmm. all of his mistakes. You're seeing things like the, the food stamp issue 
is really a problem of his own making and his administration's making, mm-hmm. and he's having to, you know, he can't paper over it for two more years. You know, mm-hmm. that's, and I he'll try, he'll try. Yeah, but it's it's really an it's an emergent problem. It's a it's a mm-hmm. huge issue. It's tied to national funding. There could be major consequences for the state, and there are people who can't eat food because of the mm-hmm. of their failures. Yeah. Yeah, I think, it, you know, covering the city, Anchorage City has been interesting, too. I mean, it's just I think there's a good reminder that a lot of the politics, a lot of the kind of stuff that matters to us happens on the local level, but not all of it. Right. And yeah. so I think it's one of those things where, you know, I think that you can see, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the, all the kind of forces fighting against each other. Right. Where, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're not we're definitely not all pulling in the same direction at times. So. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, your city is – Anchorage has always been tough for me. Like, it's this center periphery <laughs> issue. There's, like, this social theory. It's kind of a geographic metaphor, but in, in Alaska, it's like almost like a literal metaphor that there's a center and a periphery, and the center sort of, like, absorbs a lot of the resources and and uh, economic opportunity from the periphery and doesn't really give a lot back, but it kind of, like – gets to make all the decisions and becomes sort of a, a nucleus for for that and it's not necessarily like an uncaring uh evil it's it's more of a error of omission it's, it's like n- n- being too big for the space you're in and not realizing that you're knocking over all the furniture it's that like big dumb happy dog wagging its tail and knocking over all the lamps and all the lamps are all the little peripheral communities in alaska and so like anchorage is like if you pay attention to news in Alaska, you have to you you can hardly avoid knowing what's going on in Anchorage, and the, on the flip side of that, Anchorage gets sucked into its own issues in a way that makes state politics uh, less of a concern. So Bronson's been so noisy and absorbs so much effort, and you see things like you know like the Alaska Current that you're part of like grew up around this opposition to Bronson's policies and some of the terrible decisions he's been he's been making but that's an effort that like now is not opposing these bigger state issues that impact all of us right and so when when the center turns its attention in on itself the periphery suffers and so the rest of us in the state of Alaska have all these big state issues that aren't getting dealt with because Anchorage is so busy trying to sort its own mess out and so hopefully you have a mayoral election and get some alignment and get your shit together so that the rest of the state can move forward. I don't know if they're holding everything back, but Oh no, I think yeah. it's a distraction though. That I think that yeah. what, what it does is it makes it difficult for uh state level discussions to happen because there's when when your oven is when on you have like a half of the state that's like hyper yeah, yeah. I think it makes sense when yeah. your oven is on fire your attention is in the kitchen right like when yeah. you're and and you're not worried about what's going on out, outside of the of that immediate thing and so like that's that's what's happening in anchorage right now is mm-hmm. that you have been anchorage has been focused on anchorage anchoraging yeah and i and i don't you know it's it's not their fault i mean it is their fault they voted for this guy but it's you know, it's not a conscious decision. It's it's a necessity. Like if if mm-hmm. I if my mayor was Dave Bronson, I would be focused on Dave Bronson. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, my mayor is not Dave Bronson. Um, but I, you know, I think there's. It'll be nice if Anchorage can turn some attention to bigger state problems, 
And I think that, you know, like we've got people like Dunleavy that maybe wouldn't be in there if people were a little more tuned into some of the state problems. Or mm-hmm. we've got things like the food stamp issue that maybe wouldn't would have a little more focus on it if, um, you know, if the kitchen wasn't on fire. Fair. I, I think now might be a good time to kind of turn our eyes towards the future. What do we see ahead? What do you see ahead? What are you um, looking forward to in this session? And what do you think some of the big issues are going to be on the table? I think that education funding is going to be, you know, the really big question here. Um, you know, so the legislature left the leg- left the session with, um, you know, $174 million in additional school funding. The governor vetoed half of it. Yeah. Um, kind of arbitrarily which, also. Yeah. And, you know, in the legislative session starting at about halfway through the fiscal year. So, you know, they could, for example, try to restore some of that funding for this year. That that could be a fight. Uh, I think that there's going to be a big fight over whether to make this increase that they passed last year permanent through um, a BSA increase. Um, you know, the, the basically, you know, there's a lot of these areas, right, in, in state government. You know, I think education is the most forefront one where I think we can all look at it. Most people can look at it and say, it kind of looks like it hasn't been keeping up with inflation at the very least. We should probably at least maybe keep up with inflation. And, you know, you look at almost every single department in the state uh, on the city level, and it's true pretty much across the board. You know, it's just the buying power isn't there. And and there's a lot of pushback, though, to like increasing that funding because it means increasing the budget, increasing the revenue that is required to fund it. And then there's the question of how do you generate that revenue? And so I think right now what we're seeing from the Dunleavy administration is this kind of just sort of like fundamental disagreement with reality, right? That where everybody else, you know, Republicans and Democrats look at the situation and say, geez, it really looks like we're not keeping up with what we need to keep up with. There's kind of like this sort of like battle over reality where they're arguing that, oh, no, it's actually all fine. That's sort of the the track that we've seen so far. So that's going to be the big question. I think what's really interesting, too, is we're seeing a big shakeup around the governor's budget office. Um, So Neil Seiniger, the guy who'd been there for most of the term after the Don Arduin years is gone. There's a lot of concern that it's signaling a more like hyper conservative turn again, or more kind of, you know, cuts focused sort of turn. So we'll see. Yeah. And his interim actions kind of signal that as well. It looks like he's sort of building his confidence and may come back with, with some Donna Arduin era um, funding decisions, but yeah, we'll see, right? I had heard that he was going to be moderate this term. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> I has... think the thing. I, I am still like irked about that. All, bets All this are talk off, right? about more moderate Dunleavy second term. He's going to be work with the legislature. He's going to avoid the controversial issues, and then he immediately leans into the controversial issues and is more conservative than before. And it's just like, I don't know. I think there's. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm just frustrated that basically he get got to say that people got to believe him for a month or so, and then well, yeah, that was like a campaign effort to sell yeah. him to Alaska's business class. It's like, yeah, listen, we've got him under control. Was the messaging right? Mm-hmm. Look at this. He's going to be more moderate, and yeah, I don't. He's that's doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I think other interesting issues are the the Alaska Marine Highway funding. Last session, Murkowski really came in and said listen, yeah. you guys need to step up. The state of Alaska needs to show that you care about this and fund it so that I can bring in this matching money from the feds. And there's a lot of federal money on the line right now that Murkowski's lined up. And if the state isn't willing to 
show some investment in it, she's going to have a really hard time justifying uh, those expenditures, and it could all go away. We could lose mm-hmm. um, an incredible opportunity to rebuild the marine highway system, and so I think that that's going to be a big issue, especially since Bert Stedman is a big fan of the marine highway and is a you know powerful has a powerful seat on Senate finance and and really has a lot of control right now in the Senate, and so I think that. The marine highway is going to be a pivotal issue this year. I think that the um, there's a quiet battle going on for the soul of the permanent fund that is going to mm. affect us in ways that may be generational. You know, what the decisions they make now on whether or not to pursue some arbitrary goal of $100 billion uh, or to make sound investments, like that could be... Let's just be... hope they're good betters. I mean, I think... It, it... <laughs> That was like another big, you know, element of the, my reporting this year was covering a lot of the, um, the the board meetings and just yeah. sort of laying out like what is going on there. And I think that's like, if more people saw what was going on at the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation's Board of Trustees, I think there'd be a lot more alarm. It's there. alarming because it's... I think that like, you know, there's always sort of been this like kind of very staid sort of. Um, like disciplined approach to, you know, we are going to earn the six or seven percent or whatever. We're going to meet, you know, we're going to just, yeah, just manage kind of a it safely. Goes, safe and, and now secure. there's, yeah. And so then the, this last meeting, um, uh, trustee Ellie Rubenstein basically came out and was like, we're going to bet the farm. We're going to take out a bunch of loans. We're going right. to, you know, boost the fund's value from like $75 billion to $100 billion in less than five years. And everyone is like, this is a crazy thing to do yeah. at a time when basically like, you know, the, the market has been really good in the last couple of years. It's not so good anymore. And, and there's a lot of like kind of uh, bearishness over, over what's where it's going. Yeah. And also and, just the idea so, that a $75 billion investment fund needs to take out a loan. Like that just seems, uh, it seems risky. Like we, yeah. we don't need to like take out a giant loan and invest that loan in some arbitrary. It's it's a very it seems harebrained. Yeah, well, and it's also it's important to keep in mind too that you know this is coming from one of Dunleavy's closest advisors. You know, she's been talked about highly as you know having the ear of the governor and how he sought her out because he he heard that she was feeding Africa through some of some charity or some startup company, venture capital company that she had. I mean, I don't think that's um, the case. Like she's the daughter of former ADN owner, right? Like Alice Rogoff. Isn't mm-hmm. she tied into that? The, like the, yeah, that whole family. The Ruben, the, yeah. The whole family. Yeah. Rubenstein. Are, are, well, and that's the thing too, is that, so she comes she from a world of, of uh, uh, yeah, of yeah. Um, her and, and uh, David Rubenstein. Yeah. And so big, it's, uh, I mean, they, they have some history in Alaska already. Well, and they also have, you know, Rubenstein's a huge player in the private equity world. Yeah. So, and that's exactly, surprise, that's entirely what her strategy of boosting the permanent fund was based around, right? Yeah. And is basically around taking these riskier investments into private equity um, I think, you know, not only I think there, uh, you know, there's several things to to sort of highlight there, but you know what I'd say is that, you know, it it, it feels I think watching these hearings it feels like, on some levels from some of the from some of the um, trustees you know beyond just Rubenstein is that there's like this sort of like playing house sort of like feeling with. Yeah. Um, 
this behavior where it's almost like a vanity pro it to me at least seems like it's almost a vanity project for some of these trustees that being in charge of all this money and 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 being able to say that they they were the ones who came up with the plan that boosted the money is like is good you know it's sort of it seems to be important very important to them yeah and you know there's all these pushes to open international offices when the staff is telling them look we don't need these international offices we just need to be able to let people work from home really that's like yeah. that's the main selling point that's the and and there's like this con continual like sort of refusal around it and uh, i think this last meeting was like kind of the first one where we saw a lot of pushback basically all the financial advisors were going hell no like we wouldn't like we're not like, we're not willing we would not they, they were saying like basically don't you know, don't try to push the return expectations to like the nine or ten percent that would be needed to hit this goal. And they were saying, well, what would be, you know, is there somewhere in between that you would support? And they go, no. They go, no. if anything, we would say to take less risk on. And um, and so that you know that your your current investment strategy is already too risky and and and, and too uh, too ambitious, basically. Yeah. And so at least there's some pushback on it. Uh, yeah. I think. I mean, Juno is a, a small town, and <laughs> my understanding from the scuttlebutt is that the the staff are not super thrilled with the board right now. Yeah. Well, you better not let it get out because we saw what happened to Angela Rodell when she wasn't super thrilled. She wasn't even necessarily super antagonistic with the board, and she got the axe, but she was not seen yeah. as not friendly sure. enough. So yeah, they've they already clean house and hire they've already established. And, yeah, they've and already that's part established. Of what they want to do, right? They want to move yeah. things to Anchorage. They want to hire a bunch of people that want to live in Anchorage that like probably yeah. are a little more aligned with their way of thinking, and then they can kind of do whatever they want. Yeah, and so I think that you know, I think from the legislative pr perspective, I know that there's you know there's already a lot of bad feelings about their decision to unilaterally open an Anchorage office with when they didn't have any you know there was no budget to open an Anchorage office, but they did it anyways. Oh. Um, so there's a lot of pushback about that. I think it's going to be interesting. You know, we w saw sort of after the Rodell firing. Um, there was a lot of questions around like, well, do we need to? Is there and is there a need for some sort of legislative oversight or, 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 you know, professionalization of the board or changes? And I think that is going to gain some steam here because, you know, we've, we've heard, I've, you know, I've listened to several, uh, legislative hearings where Bert Stedman is basically, you know, short of like cocking the, you know, racking a shotgun and, you know, getting ready to go. But see, you know, I think a lot of these legislators feel very strongly that, you know, that this fund needs to be like carefully and safely maintained. Well, it's become a major leg in our funding situation for the state of Alaska, right? And our budget yeah. now relies almost more uh, oftentimes relies more on the money made from investments than money made from oil and resources and so it's very important beyond the dividend check that people get that is a huge political issue the the investment income that spills into the state to fund services is huge and if we you know, you look at the permanent fund corporation, and that's one of the few things in the state that actually has been working over the last, you know, 20 years that's really mm -hmm. been steadily holding its ground and growing. And, um, you know, there have been bumps in, in the road, but it's been great. It's been it's it's become a, a major tentpole in our in our state uh, revenue 
and I think that the the idea that we need massive changes to the permanent fund corporation or that the board needs to come in and change the way we've been doing business um, seems counterintuitive if you look at the way the results of business over the last 10, 20 years of this like steady uh, steady growth model with inflation proofing is seems like we're doing all right. So, yeah. well, I mean, we could be doing better. And and the problem, it's so funny because the problem you got to spend money to make money. But it's so funny because <laughs> the problem isn't the way the board is organized. It's who is appointing people to the board, and that's the governor. And we just elected a terrible governor, and we gave him eight years to to just tank the state. And we're everything we're trying to fix is a problem of our own creation. <laughs> and. and I don't know. I just wish we'd had a, a little better um, discussion the first time when we elected Dunleavy. And yeah. I feel like he he was able to skip debates. No one really cared what he said. They're looking a little bit more at the cut of his jib, and and uh, and we got what we got. And now we're stuck with it, and we're mm. going to be cleaning up his mess for a long time. Yeah, it's weird to live in a state that's in decline. Yeah, Alaska is in decline right now. We're yeah, we're living in a state where, uh, you know, our kids, our nieces, our nephews are not going to have as much opportunity, as much reason to stick around as as we did. I mean, that's the thing, right? When we talk about the the being inspired by the young people all earlier in this episode, right? Like the reality is that if they are smart. <laughs> look somewhere else right or they'll go to college somewhere else and not come back and i think that's like deeply deeply upsetting right and i think that's like frustrating for where we're at right now and i think that you know obviously it'd be great if we could make some changes to make it a more livable place for everybody yeah i it's it's a it's a catch-22 because there's a lot of people i wish that would stay here and invest (laughs) here and uh, and when they go, I can hardly fault them. And mm-hmm. uh, at the same time, there's so much opportunity and there's so much an individual can do to, to make a footprint here and, and to make things happen. And it doesn't take a lot of people. I feel like if we had 12 more amazing human beings in Alaska, the whole state could be different. And it, it just we just need a few people to stick around and to be part of that mm-hmm. and to have a vision for our future. And I hope that they're out there. Yeah. All right. Hey, good talking with you again. Yeah. Nice I was feeling good. And now I'm feeling bad again. What? So yeah, that's what I'm here for. No, I'm just kidding. Here yeah. to make you feel bad. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot uh, for listening. Yeah, thank and, you. And uh, we'll, we'll be back intermittently and covering the session and um, Alaska policy through this winter and into the spring until I get distracted by comic books. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Goodbye, Alaska. Bye.